have a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. I do want to invite you, if you will, grab your notes out of your handout. You can see today, best sermon ever. Uh, not in uh, sort of re referring to my sermon, the one I'm going to be bringing, but in reference to the one we're going to be talking about, which is Jesus' sermon, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Without question, the best sermon ever delivered, talked about billions of times, read billions of times throughout the years. No other sermon even comes close. And what we're going to see today is that this is one of those incredibly paradigm-shifting absolute earth-shaking kinds of sermons. And, and we started last week, and we're excited to continue through this week. And I just want to bring a challenge to this summer, if, if we could, Overlake. Let's be going through it together on our own, in our own devotional time, reading through uh, the, this incredible message that Jesus brings. And you'll see it's challenging. Um, it's also just, there's so much that helps us understand who he is and what it is that he's accomplishing. So, before we get into the text, I want to ask and then begin to answer a question, how do we understand the Bible? How do we read the scripture and then know what it means and how to apply it to our lives today? And it's a really good question, because if we don't have a good answer to that question, at least what we can do is agree that over the last 2,000 years, people have taken the words of Scripture, they have taken it out of context, they have misunderstood it and misapplied it, and they have used God's Word to justify all kinds of horrific things. Things like genocide, things like slavery, things like racism, misogyny, polygamy, all kinds of things like that. And if we don't understand what the Scripture is about and how it is that we understand and, and apply it, we could come to the conclusion sometimes that the exact opposite of what it is that God's heart requires for us. And uh, it, even the Bible itself says that it is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the Bible itself tells us that it's like a chainsaw. And, and that doesn't mean that it's bad. It, it just means that it's powerful and it needs to be handled with caution and with care. So I want to begin uh, by way of introducing today's text, I want to begin by trying to answer the question, how is it that we understand Scripture? A couple of years ago, we actually taught through a, a survey of the Bible called Route 66. We kind of surveyed all 66 books and what it is that God was revealing through them and, and how the topography, if you will, of this road trip through the Bible kind of was going, you know, we we're going through Kansas, it was pretty flat. But then we talked about Jesus as the continental divide, okay? So Jesus is that continental divide. He's the, 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 the pinnacle. And if you know about a continental divide, that's the place where, by necessity, the continent is divided. The rivers flow different directions on either side of the continental divide. It's also the highest peaks. It's the pinnacle that Jesus is. And if you want to just do it kind of a little, it's, a, it's the vantage point from which we can view the whole rest of the scenery, right? We understand that, and again, that was a couple of years ago. What I want to do today is I want to give you an actual method, a synopsis of a method with which you can use to understand the Scripture and apply it to your life. 
This doesn't mean that we'll always come to the same conclusions when we read scripture, but this is very, very helpful. This is one of the powerful tools to understanding what it is that's going on, how it is that God is working through the entirety of the scripture, all the way from the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. So let me just tell you, if, if it helps for you to write this stuff down, great. If not, you can just watch, you can listen, you can sleep, but here it is. First five books of the Bible are the law, the Pentateuch. And what we see in the Pentateuch is that the Pentateuch, it points to something. It's pointing forward. And what it is pointing forward to is Jesus. As early as Genesis chapter 3, where God the Father prophesies that Jesus will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's at the very beginning of the first book of the Bible. Then in the Exodus, what you see is Moses leads his people out of slavery into freedom. It's the foreshadowing of Jesus leading his people out of slavery to sin and into freedom. In the Passover, you see that as the, the, the perfect lamb is sacrificed and the wrath, right, the, the angel of death passes over, so now we have Jesus as that perfect lamb so that the penalty for sin is paid, the wrath of God passes over. So the law just points forward to Jesus. Well, then you have history. And history also points forward. You got the kingship of David pointing forward to the kingship of Christ. Then you have the wisdom literature. You have the Psalms and the Proverbs. You've got uh, Ecclesiastes. You've got Job. Job, by the way, who says, I know my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. It's all pointing forward. Then you've got the prophets. After that, you've got both major and minor prophets. And uh, in the prophets, for example, you've got Isaiah chapter 52, which is literally a description of Jesus, the suffering servant, and the role that he'll, feel, he'll fill. You've got in Jonah, Jonah three days in the belly of the whale, then emerging to proclaim salvation to Nineveh. Jesus, the foreshadowing of Jesus, three days in the belly of the earth to emerge proclaiming salvation for all the world. So everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Then you've got Jesus. You've got the Gospels, right? And the Gospels are the life of Jesus. They're the teaching of Jesus. They're his understanding of his identity, his role. They're the crucifixion of Jesus for the penalty of sin, the resurrection of Jesus, showing that this is the anointing uh, one. This is the hand of God upon him. He wasn't just a martyr. Yes, he was a martyr, but he's the resurrected son of God, now risen and placed at the right hand of the Father. So this is all revealed in the Gospels. And then in the book of Acts and in the letters, what you have is what it looks like to live life with Jesus and life for Jesus. And then in Revelation, at the end, it points back to the return of Jesus. And so everything in the New Testament points to Jesus as well. In fact, one of the ways you can remember this is the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament presents Jesus. This is what the Bible is about. You're welcome. Okay? Now, the reason why I say all of this is because it's very, very important for us to understand that this is what's going on. It's a systematic view of what it is that God has had in mind from the very beginning. Jesus is not an afterthought. He's not a plan B. 
If the Bible just started here, you wouldn't understand all of the importance of why Jesus had to do what he did, say what he did, the, the role that he was fulfilling. We wouldn't know it if we just started here. So God built, you know, 1,500 years of prophetic utterance. This is what's going to happen. Then Jesus fulfilled it. Now we know this is the answer. This is what God wants for us. But I, I just want you to see that if, if you're ever answering the question, hey, what's the Bible all about? You need to realize it's an understatement to say it's about Jesus. The entire thing is about Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you miss the whole point. We have a very Christ-centric view of faith here at Overlake. Right? He is absolutely the pinnacle. He's the point. And he is the perspective. So even as I drew a little box around this, I also want you to think of it as a window. Because Jesus is now the window through which we are able to go into the scripture and understand what it is that God is revealing to us and what it is that we're to apply to our lives. There are many, many examples of this, and, and, and we could take you know forever unpacking this, but what I want you to do is I want you to look at one passage from Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, and let's just talk about this. Let's give an example of how we have to view it through the lens of Jesus. So here it is. It's about the burnt offering brought to the tabernacle. It says in verse 3, If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. So this is what's happening in the, in the sacrifice here. Then slaughter the young bull in the Lord's presence, and Aaron's sons, the priests, will present the animal's blood by splattering it against all sides of the altar that stands at the entrance to the tabernacle. Okay, let's unpack it for a moment. There are many things that we can pull out of this passage, as it's true with all passages in Scripture, because the Bible is breathed by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's always going to be something that's useful for us. By the way, if we misunderstand and misapply the Bible, it's not on God, right? It's, it, it's God-breathed. It's inspired by God. No, if we misunderstand it and misapply it, that's on us. That's our problem. So let's understand what's going on here. Well, we see a few things. Number one, we see what is the ancient animal sacrifice, the, the ritualistic practice of ancient Israel as prescribed by the law. So we learn, oh, this is what they did. This is how they practiced their religion. We learned that it was to be a, an animal without defect, that it was to be the very best that God's people had that they were bringing to the Lord, not their worst, not their leftovers, not the animals they didn't want to have, you know, so they weaned their worst out. No, they were to bring their best to the Lord as a sacrifice. We see that the person was supposed to put their hand on the animal and, and to be very close to the sacrifice so they would understand, they would connect that it was my sin that's causing this animal's death. And in so doing, to recognize the grief and the, the real remorse and the consequence of their own actions. In fact, it was a foreshadowing of this prophetic utterance that the wages of sin is death. And it was so they would conclude all that in the form of the sacrifice. That's what you do with a passage like this. What you don't do with a passage like this is begin to change the way that we do church services here at Overlake. 
right? We don't now suddenly bring in all these animals, hundreds of hundreds of animals, week in and week out. Rob alone would bring hundreds and hundreds of animals, you know, and, and, and my job doesn't change to be, you know, I slaughter all these animals and we just throw buckets of blood all over everywhere, and there are reasons why we don't do that. Number one, PETA would shut us down right away. And number two, we're not viewing the scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice for the penalty of sins for all time. And if we don't understand that, we're going to take verses like this and misapply them and misunderstand them. You see, Jesus says, I am the completion of this animal sacrifice. God himself provides the sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. And it is full, and it is complete, and it's beautiful. And, and, and he accepted the sacrifice by raising Christ from the dead and seating him at the right hand of the Father. So we know this. Why would we go backward into animal sacrifice when God himself has accomplished everything that is required? We don't need to sacrifice an animal, a bull, a dove, any kind of scapegoat. We don't need to do penance on our own. Why? Because the full penalty of sin has been paid for by the person of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's why. And if we don't have the lens, if we don't have the window, we're going to come to erroneous conclusions. You see, every once in a while, somebody might have this theological conversation with you. They might have some point that they're trying to overemphasize. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, something like that. And they'll point to it and they'll say, look, it's right here in black and white. Don't you understand? Don't you believe the Bible? And you answer, absolutely I believe the Bible when properly interpreted. And how it's properly interpreted is through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Jesus is perfect theology. He also says there's no way to the Father except through me. And I would argue in the context of this conversation, there's no way to understand the Father's heart in Scripture unless through the lens of Jesus. See, this is how we understand what's going on in Scripture. After the resurrection... The risen Jesus appears to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he begins at the beginning. Right? He starts all the way back here at the law and with Moses and the prophets. And he shows that everything here points to himself. The scripture says this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in, can we say this word together? All the scriptures. All the scriptures. And so the point that you need to remember in this long introduction is that Jesus is not an afterthought. If you want to write something down, write this. God has designed all scripture to point to Jesus and then made Jesus the window through which we understand and apply scripture in our lives today. That's what's going on. That's a systematic theology 101 class for us over Lake. Okay. Now, the reason why I begin today's discussion with this introduction is because it's exactly what Jesus is going to challenge us with in the text that we're going to cover. See, Jesus was this hotshot 
young rabbi. He was already very, very popular. People were drawn to him. The crowds were drawn to him because of the things that he said, because of the authority that he carried himself with. He was able to heal people, cast demons out. There was all of this talk about who he was. And then he's going to begin to preach this message, and it's going to be radical. He's going to drop theological bombshells. It's going to be revolutionary to so much of what it is that they understood. And it's going to help us understand what we just talked about right here. So the first challenge that Jesus brings, if you're filling in the blanks, is this. The challenge that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That Jesus is the one who fulfills the entirety of the law. And that's what he says, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And they're like, oh, great, I'm glad to hear it. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. <gasps> What? To fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Can you underline those last three words? Everything is accomplished. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. Can you imagine how radical that statement was to his listeners when they heard it the first time? No, you can't. It's impossible. We cannot understand how radical that would have sounded, how revolutionary. That Jesus is basically saying, hey, this entire thing, this Old Testament, this huge book, I fulfill it. That's my purpose. I don't want to destroy it. I don't want to burn it. I am going to complete it. And it was so radical. It was so revolutionary. And then when you look at that last phrase, until everything is accomplished, what does Jesus accomplish? He accomplishes everything. He fulfills the law perfectly. He knew that he would be the ultimate sacrifice for sin and guilt. That he was the prince of peace, restoring peace between us and God and us and one another, between us inside of ourselves. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it beautifully and finally. That is why on the cross of Calvary, the last thing that he said before he gave up his spirit is, it is finished. It's done, it's complete, it's fulfilled. And in that moment, what did God the Father do? He ripped the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, displaying the reality that now God is with us and God is for us. And because of Jesus, God dwells within us. That's what was happening. That's what was happening. And, and, and Jesus was fulfilling this Old Testament, this Old Covenant based upon the law that was fulfilled in Christ. Now there's a new covenant based on grace, based on his favor, based on his purposes. And this is what it says in Hebrews 8, 6. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he's the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Isn't that awesome? Friends, now you understand why we need to know how to read the Bible. Because Jesus is leading us into a new, better relationship with the Father. But I want to tell you, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be a challenge for us. In some ways, and we'll get into it right now, in some ways, the challenge is actually quite more difficult. It's more arduous for us because he's going to go after something that the law never did. He's going to go after our hearts. So he's going to bring this next challenge. If you're filling in the blanks, it's this. The next challenge he brings is that friendships are to be deeper than non-murder. 
Friendships, relationships are to be deeper than not murdering one another. Now, let me just be really clear. Not murdering one another is great. In a fallen world, with the headlines that we've had this week, I'll take non-murder. Right? I'll, I'll ta- let's make that a starting point, America. Like, n- not murder? Yes, that's, that sounds great to me. I sign up for that. Not murder is, is where we should start. That, that should be the reality. No, don't. Come why, why not murder, by the way? I mean, I, I can't believe I'd have to tell you. Hey, let's talk about why murdering is a bad thing. But uh, why? It's because that person is made in the image of God. It's because Jesus is dying on the cross for that person. So why in the world would you take another person's life? Any of us. Why would we do it? We wouldn't. Don't do it. That's what it says. That's what the laws. Don't. Okay, so we got it. No, no. Mike, I think murder is great. No, you don't. All right. So, so, so we're, Jesus is starting with this premise of not murder, but then he's going to take it to a new place, a place that the law never took it. And this is what he's going to say. He says, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Okay. Jesus is talking to a crowd, and they all would have known the command, thou shalt not. They all would have known not to commit murder. And because they would have known it and by and large have lived by it, they would have been feeling rather smug in their position as non-murderers. That, well, I've never committed murder, so I, God must be really good with me. But then Jesus takes it to the next level. He says, yeah, but you can't even call people raka. Which, by the way, just so you know, my whole life I have never called another person raka. Maybe the one sin I have never committed, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about, Mr. T? I pity the rucka. You know what I'm talking about? This is a tough crowd. It really is. He's saying, I'm going after your heart. I'm, I'm going, what, what about when you call somebody a fool? You're driving. You say, oh, idiot. What, what happens when you, when you just, oh, I can't believe how stupid you were in that moment. What about the grudge that you hold? Somebody's wounded you, and you just hold on to it. You never let it go. You demand your pound of flesh. You want them to eat crow. All of this misses God's heart because God created that person in his image and because Jesus is going to die on the cross for them too. And and when you hold on to your anger, when you hold on to a grudge, when you allow a relationship to have friction or, or you just let it kind of go rotten, it's like when you have a wound. Let's say you have a deep wound in your leg, but you never deal with it. You never clean it. You you never wash it out. You just cover it up with, you know, greasy rags. You just cover it up. It's going to affect your life. You're going to be limping around after a while. It's going to fester. It's going to go gangrenous after a while. It's going to affect your your relationship with those around you. You're not going to be able to interact with them how you want to interact. Everyone around you is going to smell it after a while. That was lovely, Mike. Thank you very much. Listen, in the same way Jesus is saying, when you let a relationship go like that, when you, when you fail to resolve a grudge that you're holding, when you, when you hold on to anger or, or you use your words as daggers, he says, that in the same way, 
that's going to affect everything about your life. Jesus is saying far better to clean that with love. Far better to make reconciliation a higher value for you. And that's why he goes on. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Instead of tearing one another down, instead of holding a grudge, before you even go to church, before you go to communion, before you even go to the Lord, do what you can in as much as it is in your power to make that relationship right, to forgive or to, to ask forgiveness. And what is he doing? He's going after our heart. And friends, we've talked about this so many times, but you know Jesus is not afraid to get right up next to us, to get right up in our business to say things to us that are really uncomfortable for us to hear, but it's for our benefit. And so if he were here, he'd be saying to you, who is that relationship? What is that friend that you are actively avoiding? What is that relationship that you know with a word, with with just some kindness that you you could bring peace where there isn't peace? There's there's unrest right now, but you could, you could make it better. Well, who, who is it that you need to ask forgiveness from? And then Jesus would say, don't let the sun go down today. D- don't let this day end without taking a step. As much as you know how, just the, try to take a step of kindness, a step of love. Try to, try to take a step of reconciliation. See, he's not afraid to get right up next to this. And again, I hope you understand, it, this is radical. This 30-year-old rabbi saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, right? And he's taking it higher. He's not undoing the law. He's not saying, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, murder anyone you want. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's taking it higher. He's fulfilling the original intent of the law. And he's not afraid to make us uncomfortable with this. You know, what's interesting, he's talking about murder here. And some of us in this, in, in this room, we, we don't own guns, and we don't think that maybe it's a good idea to own guns. We might have some philosophical reasons why we don't own guns. And so maybe we're here, and we feel a little smug about the fact that we don't own guns. And to us, Jesus would say, yeah, but what about the murder in your heart? What about the, the thousands of times in your mind you have daggered your spouse? What about the the times in your mind that you have disemboweled your children with a glance or with your disapproving looks? What about the times in your mind that you've put rat poison in the dog dish? In your mind, guilty, uh, and, and then, you know, just to be real clear, so let's say to the other side of the debate, the, the whole gun thing. So, so you're here and you own guns and Jesus is right next to you. And he would say, why would you want to own a gun? What's the motive? Oh, Jesus, because if I'm in that scenario, then I'm on my... Oh, so you're already planning where and when you'll commit murder in, in, in some hypothetical situation. No, 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 that's not it, Jesus. It's because as an American, it's our constitutional right. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you have the right to bear arms. 
But I tell you, see how quiet it got in here? <laughs> Some of you, it's a little he heresy for you. You're thinking, wait a sec, is he saying Jesus is above the Constitution? For clarity's sake, yes, I am saying Jesus <laughs> is above the Constitution. Absolutely. And he's not afraid. And listen, I'm not trying to take one side or the other in this debate right now. Maybe another time we will. I, all I'm trying to do is this. Wherever you are, secure in your smugness that you're in the exact right spot that God wants you to be. Don't be too sure that Jesus wouldn't come right up next to you and say, you've heard it said, but I tell you, I'm going to take it higher. Right? Anywhere we go and create a little box of self-righteousness, Jesus will come and show us that self-righteousness is not righteous at all. He will come against that, and he'll say, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm going to tell you what about your heart. And he's going to take us to a place that the law never could. I told you it was going to be more challenging. The cancer is actually hidden inside, and so that's where Jesus is going to go. The surgeon has to cut in order to remove the tumor. That's where Jesus is going to go. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> um, I'm really glad. I hope I see you again. Okay. <laughs> The next challenge that Jesus brings, here's the next challenge. The challenge is that non-adultery is not the same as lust-free. Non-adultery is not the same as lust-free. And then he goes on, verse 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, just about everyone listening would have been familiar with the command, do not commit adultery. My guess is most, if maybe not all, but most of those listening would have not been uh, uh, adulterers. And so they would have been a little smug in this reality. And Jesus said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. And they're like, yes, that's me. I don't commit adultery, but I do judge those who do. And Jesus says, boom, right? But if you have looked at a person with lust in your heart, he says, it's the same thing. And the multitude collectively went, do. Because they'd never heard teaching like this before. They'd, they'd never heard that it was going right after the heart. And, and they didn't realize that the law, yes, it was the law, but the law created a bar that was so easy for them to hit. And Jesus was actually going after something else, the heart, which was left untouched. Then he goes on, and he, he re, I'm just so glad that he softens his teaching considerably here. He says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Just so comforting. It, it, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Really, Jesus? Literally, like self-mutilation? I mean, we'd have to change our name as a church to the one-eyed, one-hand, flying purple people eater church or something like that. That's God, it's just so hard. And what do we do with this? And, and again, what is Jesus going after? He ups the ante of what acceptable behavior is because what is behavior? It's not just what happens out here. Behavior starts right here, and that's what he's going to go after. And so if you want to know how to process a passage like this, which I, I believe is incredibly challenging, I, I would have you write down whatever drastic 
measure. That's what Jesus is preaching. Whatever drastic measure is required for you to deal with this issue of lust, whatever drastic measure is required to deal with whatever temptation may be really easy for you to slip into, take whatever drastic measure needed in order to help your heart in this regard. Let me put it in modern terms. If your colleague at work is someone you're attracted to and find yourself having thoughts or emotions that are wayward, cut that relationship off. But Jesus, she's my right hand. What would he say? Cut it off. It's better to be less successful than to miss out on the kingdom of God. If a friendship at the gym or at yoga class or at Zumba is in danger of straying, even in your own heart, cut it off. But Jesus, that's my health. Better to be less fit than to miss out on the kingdom of God. If being on the internet is too tempting, cut off your access. Better to be less connected than to miss out on the kingdom. See, what Jesus is saying is whatever sacrifice it takes for you to protect your heart in this regard is no sacrifice at all when compared to the wonder and glory of being in God's kingdom. So whatever drastic measure required. Again, he's up in the challenge here. Next challenge, value marriage even more highly than you do. Value marriage even more highly. And he goes on, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the challenge is that he, he, he's telling us, hold a high standard of marital fidelity. If you do a little bit of study, I've done, that's what I've done, a little bit of study around ancient cultures, you realize that the Jewish culture actually did value marriage more highly than many of the other cultures in the ancient world. And part of that was because of the law. But uh, th there was a concession that uh, God had prompted Moses to make in regards to marriage. And again, Jesus tells us it's because our hearts are hard. We live in a fallen world because our hearts are hard. So there's a concession for divorce. But if, if you uh, go through a divorce, Moses says, you, you need to write out a certificate. In other words, you, you can't just like out of hand dismiss. There needs to be some kind of a formal process. And, and so that's what... That's what the law said. So marriage in the Jewish culture was valued a little more highly than the rest of the ancient world. However, even in the Jewish culture, men were free to divorce women for whatever reason they wanted. You didn't keep the house the way I wanted it. You burnt my toast. You, you know, whatever it was, I'm, I'm displeased. Here's a certificate of divorce. Now, there's an additional problem. That, there's enough of a problem in that. But there's an additional problem. And the additional problem is this. So often in the ancient world, women were uneducated. They were illiterate. They did not have a trade, typically. They were in charge of the home. They were in charge of the family. But outside of the home, they weren't a part of the vibrant uh, life of the community. And, and so, if you were to divorce a woman in, in that first century, you were to send her out with a certificate of divorce, by and large, you were saying the rest of your life will be lived in poverty and destitution. You will not have a means to provide for yourself. Your only hope is to get remarried, and the chances of that are slim. And so Jesus is saying, look, you've got to value one another much more highly. You've got to honor one another in this relationship. And the time to start valuing your spouse is right now. It's, it's whatever season you're in. You're here and you're a single person. 
then the choices that you make and the way you steward your body, the way you steward your dating relationships, right now are a way to honor your marriage in the future. And if you're here and you are married, Jesus says, then, then here's what Jesus is going after in this thing. He's saying, look, don't think of your marriage as a temporary thing. Don't think of your relationship with your spouse as a thing you're just suffering through until the kids get out of the home. Then you'll go on to some other thing. You're already making a list of the future spouse traits that they want and what they'll like. And they'll like, obviously, the same things you like because that future spouse is a lot more perfect than your actual spouse. Uh, by definition, that's always going to be the case, right? Phantoms, fantasies are more perfect than real, actual people. That's why it's easier to love everybody than it is to love, you know, you. So... I just want you to understand, Jesus is saying, don't do that, because anytime you're doing that, anytime you're looking ahead, anytime you're dreaming about a different person, different body, different likes, dislikes, different whatever, he's saying, that's a form of adultery, and you're not valuing your marriage. So value your marriage even more highly than you're doing. Okay, next challenge he brings. He's bringing some wonderful challenge. Next challenge he brings is this, tell the truth and follow through. Tell the truth and follow through. He's actually going to talk about taking oaths and swearing, but what he's going after is he's, he's going after a people who tell the truth and follow through. He says this in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. Again, don't break your oath, right? It's always good to fulfill your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. So he's not counseling them to break their oath. But I tell you, he says, do not swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair, white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Here's a quick summary of this passage. Telling the truth is enough. And we need to be people who tell the truth by default. If it were absolutely known that followers of Jesus tell the truth and follow through on their promises, we'd never have to swear by anything ever. Does this make sense? Unfortunately, I was hanging out with a, a group of uh, Christian businessmen about three or four weeks ago, and we were having this retreat time together. And as we were all talking and dialoguing, one of the guys asked a question, how many of you, now they're all Christian businessmen. So the pool was, was really, it was a small pool of Christian businessmen. And he said, how many of you Christian businessmen find it really, really frightening to do business with other Christian businessmen? Every hand went up. Because every one of them had a story about some other Christian businessmen who had not followed through on their promises, said they were going to do something and didn't. Uh, had a contract that they renegotiated privately or something like that, and, and somehow we're, we're able to screw them out of just a little bit. And every one of these Christian businessmen had hesitations doing business with other Christian businessmen. And in that culture of distrust, in that culture of dishonesty, people say all the time, no, no, I swear to God, I'll come through on my promise. No, no, man, I, 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 I'll be there, I swear. Do you see? And Jesus is saying, what a broken system that is. How about this? When you say yes, mean yes. And when you say no, mean no. And don't promise unless you'll deliver. If we had that kind of a culture, if we were able to build that kind of culture as followers of Jesus, then we'd never have to say, I swear. 
I swear to God, or I swear on the Bible. We never say it. I swear by, by the hair on my head. That's kind of a funny thing. I just, you can't make your hair white or black. That was funny. I was like, why would you want to make your hair white? I, I, I want my hair to be black, and I want more of it right here. But I can't do it, right? Jesus said, you can't do any of that stuff. So since you can't do any of that stuff, why don't you do this? Just follow through on your promise. Just say yes and let your yes be yes. That's what it says in James. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Okay. So let's back up for just a minute. It's important for us, after reading through this challenging passage, this sermon that Jesus has given, to ask, what is it that God wants to accomplish within us? Let's just ask that question. It's a big picture question. It goes back to this conversation. What is it that God wants to accomplish in us? And so as we're reading the scripture, let's ask ourselves three questions. And, and you might want to write these down or just process them. But here they are. The first question, is my heart becoming passionate for the things that God's heart is passionate for? Is my heart becoming like God's heart? Is my life becoming more like Jesus' life? And can people see in my behavior and in my attitude the fruit of God's Holy Spirit? These are the questions that we should be asking all the time. Every time we open the scripture, every time we come to church, every time we start processing a decision that we have to make, is my heart becoming like God's? Is my life becoming like Jesus? Is there fruit in my life that looks like God's Holy Spirit? That's what's being accomplished. That's what the, the desire of God's heart. And so Jesus starts with the law. He says, the law is not bad. Let's start with the law. Don't commit murder. Don't, you know, adult. Don't all this stuff, right? He said, that, that's fine. I'm not going to undo it. I'm going to fulfill it by going after your heart. Because what God wants is he wants for our hearts to want the same things that he wants. Hearts that don't want to murder. Hearts that don't want to adult. Hearts that don't want to break our promises, right? We, he wants our hearts to be like that. And so as, as I go through that reality, I just have to confess, I need Jesus. I need his help to become the kind of person that he is challenging me to become. I can't fulfill the law in my own strength, let alone this higher standard that Christ is calling me to. I need a new covenant of grace that Jesus provides. And again, that's where it's all going to go if you're filling in the blanks. I need the new covenant of grace. The old covenant is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he opens up this new covenant of grace for you and for me. It's a grace, by the way, that covers and cleanses all of our sin. Everything we've ever done that's wrong, every shameful, sinful, guilt-inducing, harm-inducing thing we've ever done, his grace is sufficient to cover that. And... His grace is available for us to live the life, this powerful life, this life where our hearts are in tune with his. His grace provides the power that we need. And the scripture says this. I put two verses from Hebrews. The scripture says, verse 13, uh, chapter 8 of Hebrews, when God speaks of a new covenant, circle that phrase, new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. So God has given us this new covenant. The old one's obsolete. Then verse 10, but this new covenant, right? This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. Circle the words new covenant. 
This is the new covenant, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And, and, and this is, the, the author of Hebrews is quoting actually Jeremiah 31, 33, which means this new covenant isn't actually a new idea of God's. It was always God's idea to allow Jesus Christ to fulfill the old covenant and to usher in a new covenant in which we receive grace to cover our sin and shame. We receive grace to give us power and to encourage us to be the kind of people that have the kind of hearts that God wants us to have. Hearts that don't want to murder. They don't want to be angry. They don't want to call people stupid. They don't want to hold grudges. Hearts that, that don't want to commit adultery, but they don't want to lust. They don't want to think about what happens after this marriage dissolves. And, and hearts that don't lie. That, that hearts that tell the truth and follow through on their promises. All of that is now possible because of a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. He's putting his desires in our own hearts. I have to answer the question then, well, how do we enter into this new covenant? And the Bible is really clear. It's, it's through trusting in Jesus. It's through faith in Jesus. And that's that last verse on your outline in Romans 3.22. We are made right with God, not by placing our hands on a bull and slaughtering it at the altar. But we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. No matter who we are. And so we're to trust that Jesus has fulfilled the whole law. We're to trust that Jesus has paid the full penalty for our sin. Even when we lust, even when we swear, and when we divorce, and when we have murderous thoughts. If you're here and you have committed adultery or murder, I do want to tell you the grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. Trust in him. Place your trust in him. Place your faith in him. And receive his grace. Enter into the new covenant of his favor and his promises for your life. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to come to you with a recognition that you are everything. You are everything the Bible is about. You are everything history points toward. You are on the throne and all things in heaven and earth and under earth are under your authority. And that means my heart as well. And so, Jesus, when I feel weak, when I feel burdened by the, the recognition that on my own strength, this challenge that you bring is too exhausting, please allow me to trust in you. Please allow all of us to place our trust in you, that you are sufficient, that you are kind, that you are compassionate, that you desire transformation of our hearts so that your kingdom will be revealed in this earth so that your way will be made known, so that your love and your kindness, your sacrifice and, and your pathway will be revealed. And, and Jesus, we just ask for your help. We just recognize that in so many ways we fall short. And so right now, knowing that you see everything about us, we just confess these things. We ask that you would meet us with your grace over the areas where we stumble. We ask that you would meet us with your grace over our places of weakness and that you would make us strong. Allow our hearts to be more and more like your heart, God. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. Mm -hmm.